0: Well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology. And we are looking at the doctrine of sin. And last Lord's Day, we began to hone in on the fall of man there in the garden, seeing the nature of the temptation of sin and its origins in our history. Today, I want to continue from there to consider further the character of sin. If You recall last Lord's Day, there were two primary points that I wanted to highlight to you in reading the story of the fall of man there in Genesis. One point was to emphasize the very special privileged position that God had placed Adam and Eve. This wasn't some cute little veggie tale story. It wasn't a little ordinary couple in an ordinary garden, just growing carrots, decided they got tired of carrots, and then God threw a temper, temper tantrum over some fruit. Rather, this is the story of a king, of a vice-regent, a ruler and representative of God on earth. He was an image-bearer, and he was tasked, along with the help of his queen, to reflect the glory of God in their lives, to be fruitful, to multiply, to raise little image-bearers in the covenant, so that they, in turn, would multiply and bear fruit. And this would just go on and on until, eventually, the whole earth would be filled with image-bearers reflecting the holy righteousness of God and filling the earth with the glory of God, spreading that garden. And this garden they were placed in was a temple. Adam was tasked to keep and guard the temple grounds, temples where heaven and earth would meet. This is where God would reveal himself in a very special man, a man, a very special way, unique way with Adam to teach in his law, his word which in turn was to govern how Adam would rule and subdue the earth to God's glory. Again, recall the words from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Even the Hebrew word Elohim which is translated as God and is used of the one true God. This word is sometimes used to describe men who rule. And of course, that's not to say that man is God, because that's that was part of the temptation in the garden, which we'll see here in a minute. But rather, the word was used of men to point out how man was to reflect God's image as they rule and govern. And so man, in the very beginning, was placed in this very special, highly exalted, privileged position but it also came with great responsibility man was not free to govern as he saw fit but was to govern under the authority and law of god and so i highlighted a second major point last week and that was for us to understand that it was exactly at that point the point at which man was to govern and rule their lives by the word of god that satan attacked did god actually say did he really say that So this is where we get to the heart and soul of sin. Sin, our standards tell us, is the want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. So contrary to all this anti-binary foolishness we hear about so often from the world, man only had one of two routes to go either submit to the authority of his creator as expressed by his word or take matters into his own hands and attempt to live and govern as he sees fit, in essence, to be his own God. John Calvin writes, it is to be observed that the first man revolted against the authority of God, not only in allowing himself to be ensnared by the wiles of the devil, but also by despising the truth and turning aside to lies. Assuredly, when the word of God is despised, all reverence for him is gone. You See the connection Calvin's making? They revolted against the authority of God. How? By despising the word of God. He goes on, His majesty cannot be duly honored among us, nor his worship maintained in its integrity unless we hang on as it were, upon his lips. Hence, infidelity was at the root of the revolt. From infidelity again sprang ambition and pride, together with ingratitude, because Adam, by longing for more than what was allotted him, manifested contempt for the great liberality with which God had enriched him. It was surely monstrous impiety that a son of earth should deem it little to have been made in his likeness. Unless he were also made the equal of God. But do you see what Calvin's pointing out here. Notice the very special privileged position that Adam was placed in. And yet, it wasn't enough for Adam. He couldn't be content there. Calvin continues if the apostasy by which man withdraws from the authority of his Maker may petulantly shakes off his allegiance to him as a foul and execrable crime. It is in vain to extenuate the sin of Adam, nor was it simple apostasy. It was accompanied with foul insult to God. The guilty pair assenting to Satan's uh, calumnies when he charged God with malice, envy, and falsehood. In fine infidelity opened the door to ambition, and ambition was the parent of rebellion. Man casting off the fear of God and giving free vent to his lust. Hence Bernard truly says that in the present day a door of salvation is open to us when we receive the gospel with our ears just as by the same entrance when thrown open to Satan death was omitted. Never would Adam have dared to show any repugnance to the command of God if he had not been incredulous as to his word. The strongest curb to keep all his affections under due restraint would have been the belief that nothing was better than to cultivate righteousness by obeying the commands of God, and that the highest possible felici- felicity was to be loved by him. Man, therefore, when carried away by the blasphemies of Satan, did his up- very utmost to annihilate the whole glory of God. End quote. So are you getting <clears throat> the picture here. This isn't a cute little story about a couple in a garden got tired of carrots. This is about a man who was granted great privilege and responsibility to rule and govern as an image bearer as one who would represent God on earth and reflect his glory and yet he became discontent with God he became discontent with God's authority and God's word and from this infidelity to God and his word sprang all ambition and pride together with ingratitude by longing for more than what was allotted to him he demonstrated great contempt for God and the rich blessings that God had bestowed upon him. And it all came to a head with these casual, seemingly innocent little conversations with Satan, fussing over the word of God. Beloved, I just I can't express to you enough how important it is that you see and you understand the root of the sin here, of the problem here. Because it's at that very point where Satan's going to come at you at every second of every day of your whole life to attack. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what could be known about God is plain in them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him in gratitude. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We have exchanged the truth of God for lies. And it all started right here in the garden in the very beginning. So consider some of the lies that man believed in the beginning. This is the character of sin. One lie that man chose to believe was that God does not preserve and govern all his creatures and all their actions. You know, as I thought about this, beloved, I thought, let us not fall for the temptation and thinking that when we go into these deep theological doctrinal Things about the sovereignty of God and his providential care over all his creatures and all their actions, as we have done. That this is just some curious little academic exercise, just a little hobby that has no real life application. Satan said to them, You surely will not die. Though God's word plainly stated just the opposite. In other words, Adam, God's not in control. He's not going to hold you accountable. He's not going to judge you. He's not governing all his creatures and all their actions. So you have a libertarian free will, Adam, just to do as you want, do as you please. Well, I mean, as long as you're not physically hurting anybody, what's it going to hurt? It's fruit. What's the big deal? You're not going to die, Adam. How often do we hear that nonsense today? And what's crazy about it, think about it, it's so blatantly obvious. (laughs) There's a flat-out contradiction. God says this. Satan says, no, he didn't. It's so obvious, and yet we fall for it. Hey, what's the problem with a, a man loving another man and getting married? Or a woman loving another woman and getting married? They're happy, they're in love, they're not hurting anybody. What's the problem? Hey, what's the problem with staying home on Sunday or going to work, not going to church, not sitting under the, the preaching of the word? God is omnipresent, is he not? He's everywhere. I can pray and worship him. I actually heard this guy at work this week, is so what comes to mind. God's everywhere, right? Yeah, I can talk to him here. What do I got to go to church for? What's the problem? See, we think we're so wise and we're so smart that we've got it figured out. And yet we become fools, Paul says. A second lie that our first parents believed and we follow in their steps is that it was God's purpose to frustrate man and to prevent him from self-realization, as Rush Dooney puts it. So they chose to believe that being obedient to God's word was going to cramp their lifestyle. That it would restrict them in some negative way. That it would enslave them, actually. That they wouldn't truly be free, quote unquote, by restricting ourselves to rules and laws. How often do you hear that one? I mean, we have pastors in churches telling Christians this lie. And doing it all in the name of free grace. They say, hey, well, I thought our, our, our problem was we, we failed to keep the law perfectly. And that's what gave rise for our need of grace, right? We can't be declared righteous by our law. True. But does it follow from that? That once God declares us righteous due to the righteousness of Christ being accredited to us, that now we are just free to live however we want, however we see fit? Well, I mean, that's absurd. Not even Adam in his pre-fall, pre fallen condition was given such, quote-unquote, liberty. That was part of the lie Satan was selling to Adam. That contempt for God's law is what got us in trouble to start with. And so we're to believe now that God, in the process of fixing in us what we broke by our rebellion to his word, to his law, but now he's restoring us to a position where we're just free to live however we see fit? makes absolutely no sense. Anytime we believe that we are to abandon God's law in order to be quote-unquote free, we are buying into the lie all over again. Beloved, we are never, ever independent of God, and we are to never live as though we are and yet that is exactly what Adam and Eve declared by eating the forbidden fruit. Such independence and freedom from God and his law is exactly what they thought they could have. But in reality, it was nothing more than lawlessness and rebellion against the authority of God. See, the law itself was never the problem. And it's still not the problem. The problem lies within us. The problem is our relationship to the law. It's that relationship that has to change. This is just a little side note here. We'll probably get more, I well, hope oh, should get more to this when we get in the covenant of grace, but recall that when we, we talked about Adam when he was created, he was placed in a covenant with God. And with that, what came with that first covenant was a law with its demands for complete obedience and threats of punishment as long as they are under that covenant. And all of mankind is under that covenant. So how then do we get free from being under that covenant? Not from being under the law, but under that covenant relationship. Well, Paul tells us how in Romans 6 and 7. It is through the death of Christ that Christ severs that bond that we who are in Christ have to the law, that relationship. Now we are free to remarry, so to speak, Christ. By our union with him, we are freed from that relationship that we once had under that covenant of works. This is what Paul's getting at in Romans six fourteen. for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul is not saying that law has died, that it's irrelevant. It's the law that still defines sin for us and righteousness, even for the believer. But what we are no longer under is that original covenant of works. It is our relationship to the law that has changed. And it is now being united with Christ and by the power of the Spirit, we can bring forth fruit to God, as Paul puts it in chapter seven. And so Paul says in Romans six, what then are we to sin? Because we are no longer under the law, we're no longer under that covenant of works, but under grace. By no means, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And then a third lie, lastly, is the premise, says Rush Duny, that man is his own God. That man can determine without reference to God in his word what is good and what is evil. Rush Duny writes, the history of mankind is in part the attempt of fallen man to make that very assertion. But to claim to be a God in the face of the creator God means waging war against that God. Two mutually exclusive claims cannot be tolerated. One of the gods has to go. And fallen mankind is determined that the God of Scripture must die. Socially, the outcome of this religious principle is anarchism. And if all men claim to be gods, then all men as rival gods will be at war with one another. And the alternative is to make the state into a God and men into slaves of the state, quote. So again, folks, contrary to what so many today in our culture want to argue, we ultimately live in a binary world. There is no spectrum of multiple possibilities that exist here. There's only one true God. And there can ever only ever be one true God. And when you despise that one true God's word, you despise him and you have declared war against him. And I've got news for you. Read the book. He doesn't lose. You're going to lose that battle every single time. I mean, how early foolish and stupid do we have to be to think that we finite, ignorant, brittle little creatures to wage war against the Almighty, Infinite, Eternal, and Immutable God—the God who thinks us into being—that we're going to go to war with Him, that we can wage a war against such power and win—it's just the height of foolishness. In fact, it literally brings God to the point of laughter. We see this in Psalm two: Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Just one little example, that there is only one God, one ultimate king, and there only ever will be, and he never loses. So I close in asking you again today, where is your trust today? Whose wisdom are you seeking? Upon whose word will you govern and live your lives? There's only two options here. There's the truth, there's the lie. There's life and there's death. There's God or there's you. I know these are very short lessons and there's a lot more that could be said, but I hope you really grasp the significance of what is at stake here when we consider the origin and character of our sin and our fall in Adam. Lord willing, uh, next Lord's Day, we'll begin then to look at the effects of this fall on us as a race.